Listen now to the Word of God. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly when we were about to sail. They put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, and after one day of a south wind, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had not done anything against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans." When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in in greater numbers, and from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go 
to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So reads the word of God. This morning as we look at this final chapter of the book of Acts, we're going to come away with a warning and a charge. That's where it's going to lead us. And we'll just set that up in advance. We're going to hear a warning and a charge from this text. But we want to walk through this story and appreciate what's here. Coming to the end of the study, not just of this chapter, but of this book. Next Sunday, God willing, Tim Kelly will be preaching an overview of the whole book of Acts. I think that'll be helpful and aid to our remembrance and aid to our appreciation of what we have studied here. And I'm looking forward to hearing that. But today we finish this text. In chapter 28 really is the, the denouement and the conclusion in the dramatic arc of chapters 27 and 28. These two chapters work together following the, the rising action in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 27 and the crisis extended in its accounting there by Luke, verses 13 through 38. And then a resolution coming in verses 39 to 44 There in chapter 27, these two chapters then function like a unit chronicling that dramatic story of Paul's journey to Rome, so exaggerated in the opposition that he faced during this travel that, that first of all, it barely makes sense to commentators why so much time is spent on it, but it seems to have been saturated with the very spiritual warfare that he writes about to the Ephesians while he is imprisoned here in Rome. It seems he faced it along the way. And you can see that at every point of the story. And on that point, we should probably note that it was during this time here in Rome that, that he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. It concludes with that instruction on how to stand firm. How to stand firm in our battles against cosmic powers over this present darkness is the way Paul wrote it there. And I believe we see a bit of what that can look like in these closing two chapters. But also, Luke finishes this account looking ahead, looking to the ongoing evangelization of the Gentile world from Paul's safe haven in Rome that incidentally wasn't available in Jerusalem. He has had to flee Jerusalem. And it's in Rome where he is described as continuing his ministry with boldness and without hindrance. The Romans throughout the book of Acts have been the place where relief is found in the spread of the Word of God, the spread of the Gospel, all the way to the very final and closing verses of this account. But in addition to that, we hear a warning to the Jews from Isaiah 6, a familiar passage 
and a powerful passage about God's judgment on his people for their unbelief and for their disobedience. So Acts finishes with this quote from Isaiah 6 that has been demonstrated, indeed it has been felt throughout the course of this history as Luke tells it. You remember the plagues in Egypt where where Scripture says that there was a darkness that could be felt. One of the plagues, one of the ten plagues there. Well, here throughout the book of Acts, I believe the opposition of the Jews has not just been seen and demonstrated, but has been felt. And it's put in a bit of context as this history comes to a close. Well, let's look at chapter 28 then together. This section of of falling action, shall we say, um, it's, um, it's in verses 1 through 28 that, we, that happened, and then the conclusion in verses 30 through 31. But we'll follow a slightly different outline as we move through it today. We're going to walk through this text in three, three steps, and they're listed for you there in your bulletin. First of all, through much opposition, Paul arrives in Rome. That's the first 16 verses. And then Paul dialogues with the Jews regarding the gospel. One final encounter recorded in these pages Verses 17 through 31, and then some final reflections on Luke's history and on gospel advance. So that's where we're headed together this morning. Let's walk through this text and see what we have. Well, I'll tell you, if you've got to be shipwrecked, you probably couldn't land in a better place than Paul and the team landed here as chapter 28 opens. Even though it's through much opposition that Paul arrives in Rome, and that's our heading over this section of these first 16 verses, It got off to a good start once they actually hit land. Luke records, verse 1, that they learned that the island was called Malta, down south of of Italy. And he went on to say, verse 2, that the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. That can kind of just sort of flip past us. But these folks from Malta stood out in the cold and rain and made a fire to comfort Paul and 275 others as the shipwreck was washed ashore in this great storm. They were happy to be here, happy to be on land, I'm confident. Can you imagine floating ashore on a piece of driftwood or perhaps being one of those who was strong enough to swim, as Luke tells the story, finally getting to the sands of Malta and having a crowd there to welcome you this way. But this group was also superstitious. D.K., not mentioned in the text, but known in history, was a goddess of justice. She was venerated on this particular island, and I believe she is alluded to here as we read about Paul's early experiences in verses 3 and following. From their perspective, she had caught up with him. Because even though Paul had escaped the storm at sea, he was helping build the fire, and a viper came out and latched onto his hand. And so the people just waited for him to swell up and die, verse 5 says. Interesting, but the odd part is that when he didn't, reminding us of Lystra back in chapter 14, but in reverse this time, there they thought they were gods, and then the very next thing they wanted to stone them as as imposters, here they thought Paul must have been guilty of a crime, 
But when they see that he didn't die from the snake bite, evidently they knew what sort of snake had bitten him. Verse 6, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. (laughs) A superstitious people. It's amazing that that seems to have been the only two possibilities, both in Lystra and and here. Either capital criminals deserving of death or a god. Nothing in between. I I don't know what sense to make of that, but it's hard to miss when you're reading the text. And even though Luke didn't include it, This very experience, I think, provided an excellent opportunity and opening for the gospel. And just as we have seen the gospel break into new areas at different points throughout this book, and it's supported by God's grace through the demonstration of signs and wonders, the very same thing happens here as the gospel breaks forth on Malta. Luke doesn't make an explicit point of it, but we can see what's going on as Paul is ministering to these people. So even though Luke didn't include it, this excellent opportunity for the gospel came and was seized upon by Paul. I'm sure he didn't miss that opportunity as he was healing Publius' father and as he was healing the rest of the people who had diseases, verse 9, that all of that didn't happen without being attached to the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the very thing he's preaching explicitly when he gets to Rome. Surely it was already on his mind here in Malta. And just a, a little aside historically, it's interesting to note that this illness, one that we might know a little bit about, this illness that Publius's father had, sounds a lot like the symptoms of one uh, of, a, of a, a disorder, a disease that was familiar enough there that it was called Malta fever. And a number of commentators include this in their work on Acts. It wasn't until actually the late 19th century where the cause for this particular fever was discerned and addressed. It evidently came from a microorganism that's found in the milk of Maltese goats. And we might think of it as, well, you know, Paul did a nice thing by healing this man. This was no 24-hour bug. If this is what Publius's father was actually suffering with, uh, historians say that Cases of Malta fever last an average of four months, but in some cases as much as two to three years of fever and dysentery, Um, and many would not have survived that. So this was a serious matter if this is indeed what Publius' father was facing. But he and that family and then these people would have then been very thankful to have met Paul and to have received gospel ministry. You wonder if there is a church on Malta that would have followed up on this work. In any case, Luke wrote in summary of this time, verse 10, they also honored us greatly. That's not hard to understand. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So they were set up for the next range of their travel by this group in Malta that had been so warmly receptive of them from beginning to end of their stay there. And it was about three months that they were there. We can see that here as the text continues in verse 11. It was three months later that they set sail from Malta. Luke records in a ship from Alexandria with the twin gods, probably meaning Castor and Pollux, um, as a figurehead. Those are the sons of Jupiter or of Zeus, depending on whether you're speaking Roman or Greek. Um, They were the gods of navigation and they were the gods of protecting sailors. So, Uh, This particular ship had that uh, distinctive about it. And with some pretty favorable conditions, they landed first at Syracuse, verse 12, 
which is the capital city of the island of Sicily. It's on the eastern coast, just, just near the southern tip. Then they sailed to Regium, we're told here, which is right on the very tip of the toe of Italy, uh, the boot. Uh, then through the Strait of Messina and up the western coast of Italy to Puteoli, Paul says, which is not far at all from, from present-day Naples and is sitting on what's called the Gulf of Naples, the way we understand it today. So they're, they're heading up the coast, and from there they went inland and stayed on land for the rest of their journey. There in Puteoli, they met some Christians, Luke records here, brothers and sisters, verse 14. Um, and then finally, after a week's stay with them, and I'm sure some sweet fellowship there, even as we have pointed out with some brief stays that don't have a lot of details previously in Acts, I'm sure that's the case, that they wouldn't be there with brothers and sisters over the course of a week without really just enjoying and rejoicing in the gospel together. But then finally, after that week's stay, they traveled by land, mostly on that famous Appian Way that extends south out of Rome. Some talk about it as being the oldest, the straightest, and the most perfectly made of all the Roman roads. The Roman roads, one of those special manifestations of um, Roman superiority in their day, but also facilitating the advance of the gospel um, through that empire at that time. And they came, verse 14, to Rome then. And the brothers there, I love this as well, when they heard about us, verse 15, came out as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns. <laughs> three taverns, Italy. Wouldn't you want to visit there? Interesting place. Interesting name, at least. Sounds like a uh, place of much fellowship. came out as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. That's perhaps 30 or 40 miles south of Rome. So on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Who wouldn't? The believers from Rome came that far outside the city to meet Paul and the team and accompany them into town. Verse 16, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him, that's uh, called military custody in, uh, with a, a Latin phrase. And uh, the lightest, as we pointed out, the lightest form of incarceration that you can have under Roman law at that time. And so they came to Rome. It's our title this morning. And finally, we've been waiting for chapters and chapters for Paul to land at Rome. It was first back in chapter 19 where it was mentioned that he would be going there. And now... He has finally arrived just a few verses before the end of the record. Well, three days, verse 17, moving into section 2, Paul's dialogues with the Jews regarding the gospel in verses 17 and following. Three days, you see there in verse 17. It would appear is what Paul allowed for himself and the team to recover from their travels. They were in Rome for three days, and as soon as that happened, then, as was his custom, to borrow the language of chapter 17, and looking at verse 17 here, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he essentially, over the next several verses, explained the basics of his case to them in summary detail, just affirming that the Jews in Jerusalem had handed him over to the Romans, wanting him to be executed. 
The Romans didn't find any basis for that, verse 18. But the Jews couldn't accept that outcome, so he had to appeal to Caesar. Even though, Paul says, at this stage even, he has no beef with the Jews and doesn't really know what he's going to say to Caesar. And evidently, neither did Festus, if you recall him asking uh, before the, uh, this whole trip saga of chapter 27. He needed to try this case before Agrippa to say, you've got to help me decide what to say to the emperor. And that problem is still present, even as Paul is reporting here to these Jews. But he said to them, and this is a compelling verse in verse 20, he said to them, for this reason, it's for this reason that I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul has maintained that from the beginning. It's because of the hope of Israel that he's wearing this chain. What he's saying is that his custody, the reason why he's in custody, is because He's devoted to Israel's hope of a coming Messiah and he believes that that hope has been fulfilled in Jesus. And for that reason alone, he has been incarcerated by the Jews, handed over to the Romans, the death sentence insisted upon to the extent that he needs to appeal to Caesar in order for justice to be served in this case. But it's that simple. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain before you. Well, amazingly, the response of these Jews was that they had not heard anything bad from Judea about Paul. That's really stunning to think that the Christians in Jerusalem hadn't sent anything in advance to the Roman Jews to let them know who was coming, but that was their report. They had heard nothing bad from Judea about Paul, but they were interested in hearing from him in any case because they'd heard nothing good about this sect of Jesus. They wanted to know what he was preaching and why it was that it was raising such opposition. So they agreed to meet, uh, to a day to meet, and verse 23, when that day arrived, probably not far from when they first talked about it, verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers even. So Paul is continuing his ministry to the Jews before going to the Gentiles. And the text records from morning till evening... He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. This is another one of those statements that, wishes, that, that makes you wish you could go back in time and just listen to this exposition from Paul. It's been 30 years since the resurrection of Jesus. It's been just about that amount of time that Paul has been studying the Scriptures and seeking to understand the very things that he is proclaiming to the Roman Jews here. At this stage of his life and of his ministry, how polished, how persuasive must this exposition have been? How many loose threads from the law and from the prophets had Paul picked up over time to tie off and to help them understand that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. And the text says that from morning till evening, he was preaching and teaching on these subjects with these people. But look at verse 24. 
It's as stunning as a very similar description on the Mount of of, uh, Ascension just before Jesus returned. He, He was teaching about the kingdom of God and many believed, but some doubted, the text records in Matthew. Here again, verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. That sounds a little bit more active than just that they didn't accept it or that they weren't convinced. They actually believed the opposite. They, they opposed what Paul is saying. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And the statement that pretty much put an end to the discussion was said in response to this disbelief, as Luke tells the story. And you see it there in verse 25, an introductory sentence from Paul and then a quotation from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Verse 25, Paul said, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and then quoting Isaiah 6, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn. And I would heal them. Then verse 28 finishes Paul's words recorded in the book of Acts. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. If you've been paying attention during the book of Acts, that should give you cold chills and make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. This salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. We've seen it all along. It's not a new statement. But we're at the bottom line of the book of Acts at this point. We're at the final word. And the final word is a word of judgment on the chosen people of God. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That's what did it. Pronouncing judgment on them, using Isaiah's words to their ancestors... Paul affirmed that the salvation that they had long awaited and for those who disbelieved were still waiting, this salvation that they long awaited will be sent to the Gentiles due to their dullness of heart to receive it. Chilling. Stunning, really. This statement from Isaiah. It's God's description of the ministry that Isaiah had just agreed to receive in Isaiah 6. Some call this the conversion of Isaiah, not just his commissioning. This is the point at which the message of God grabbed his own heart, but as Isaiah responded to the purifying touch of God and to the question, who will go? Who Who will go for us? Who will we send? Isaiah says, what? Here am I. Send me. 
And in response to that response to God's call, this was his charge. Your calling, Isaiah, is to preach to my people. Not so that they'll repent, but so that they'll be confirmed in their persistent, stubborn disbelief. That's your calling. I want you to go preach to them so that there can be no denying that they've heard the truth. But even before you go, you need to know they are not going to respond and this is going to drag on for a long time. That's the next couple of verses that weren't quoted here from Isaiah 6. That can be hard to understand. God sending a prophet, an eloquent, brilliant prophet. You can see by how Isaiah recorded the Word of God throughout the course of his prophetic ministry and throughout the course of his writing. Sending one like that to confirm the lostness of his people. And yet we have to say that even as that happened, in the text itself, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a a root from Jesse that's talked about. There's something that's going to still happen. There's still some sign of life, but... Judgment is what is being preached here and now in the present moment through the prophet of God to the people of God. If we were to ask the question, why those people in Isaiah's day, or indeed why these Jews in Paul's own day here at the conclusion of the book of Acts, why these people do not understand and receive the gospel? If that question is on our hearts, We answer saying their unbelief could be attributed, and here I appreciate so much the work of of J.A. Alexander and of John Stott who kind of condensed that and helped put it into a package that is more easily understood. So I want to quote Stott's summary of Alexander here. Their unbelief could be attributed and in fact is attributed in Scripture sometimes to the preacher's preaching sometimes to the direct judgment of God against their persistent sin, and sometimes to their own willful deafness, blindness, and dullness of heart. Do you hear what he's saying? In Isaiah's words, as it's applied, you can hear sometimes it's the preacher's word that's confirming their lostness that they won't hear. Sounds like what it was in Isaiah's day. At other times, it's just the direct intervention of God deadening their senses to what they're hearing and in judgment forbidding them to respond. Just just actually sentencing them to continue on in the very disobedience and rejection of the truth that they've been living in for so long. So it's a direct intervention from God in judgment. The third possibility here is that just through, it's it's laid on the people themselves, their responsibility as they have heard the truth and hardened their heart again and not responded. And all three of these are present in what Isaiah says. And each of them is used, Alexander suggests, in the New Testament quotations of this familiar passage from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is quoted by, by John the apostle, John the, uh, the evangelist, in John chapter 12. 
It's also quoted by Jesus Himself, recorded in Matthew 13. And it's quoted by Paul here in Acts 28. And each of these seems best understood as spotlighting a different one of each of these three emphases from Isaiah 6. When John used it in John chapter 12, it appears as though he's actually laying it on the preacher. Namely, Jesus' own preaching has confirmed the lostness of his people. When Jesus quotes it in Matthew 13, it seems to have been pointing to God's direct judgment on the people. And that's why they don't hear. And as Paul's quoting it here, the emphasis that he seems to be pointing to is the people's own obstinacy. Their own refusal just to believe. He's laying it on the shoulders of the Jews himself. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 seems to cover all three of these eventualities. And it's always a dynamic interplay between all three of them. None of them is ever absent. But which one is getting the emphasis in this particular case? It helps to understand that word of judgment. But it confirms yet again that salvation is of the Lord, as is judgment. And we entrust those things to God, and they play out according to His will and to His purpose. But this little brief study brings us back around to Paul's amazing statement in verse 28. Having pronounced this judgment, having divided this conversation that went from morning till night and finally saying, you know what, you folks who disbelieve, you're proving Isaiah's words. Imagine hearing that from the Apostle Paul after listening to him expound this all day. You who disbelieve are just proving Isaiah's words and he comes to you again with the Word of God from Scripture saying you are rejecting the truth that could save you. And he finishes in verse 28, coming back around to that again. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation that you're rejecting, this salvation of God has now been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. They are going to be reconciled to God through this message. And then Luke finishes, verse 30, with Paul lived there for two whole years. Think about that, about six months in travel, two years of incarceration in Caesarea prior to this, and now two more in Rome, four and a half years, approaching five. By the time Paul is free of this, ministers, it appears, farther west in the empire and then back to Rome for an imprisonment and death just a few years after this. Paul lived there for two whole years at his own expense, so he's still making tents while he was there, and welcomed all who came to him, verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so Luke finishes his story. A few final reflections on his history and on gospel advance. Let's look at these two closing statements in reverse order. Verse, verses 30 and 31, and then back to verse 28 to finish. It seems legitimate, wrote one commentator, to argue that the apostle who was brought to Rome to witness found his witness expanded, enriched, and authenticated by his two-year custody in the city. Do you hear that? 
it seems legitimate to argue that the apostle who was brought to Rome to witness, that's the reason he's coming, to bear witness before the emperor, it seems that the apostle who was brought to Rome to witness found his witness expanded, enriched, and authenticated by his two-year custody in the city. His witness went further because he was in jail than it would have otherwise. There was, for instance, the constant flow of people visiting him that we read about here. In addition to his witness in the presence of Caesar, Luke doesn't include that here. Something uh, unlikely to have happened if he weren't incarcerated, but even though he was and he was waiting to appeal to Caesar, Luke doesn't record anything about that. But Luke did record the word of the angel back in chapter 27 that Paul must stand trial before Caesar, so we believe from that that it must have happened. But also we have his his prison epistles that come out of this very same window of time. So while he's supporting himself in Roman incarceration, while he's meeting with people who are coming to him in a continual stream, He's also writing the letters of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Letters laced, as one writer said, with the supreme, sovereign, undisputed, and unrivaled lordship of Jesus Christ. He's sitting in prison talking about the sovereignty of God over all things. Key themes in these letters. And written during a time where he was relatively free from the relentless busyness that would typically have characterized his ministry life. It really does seem like Paul's perspective was adjusted. His his horizon was extended. His vision was clarified. And his witness was enriched by his prison experience, to finish that quote from a moment ago. And that seems most clearly exhibited not only by Luke's description here that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, verse 31. It seems most clearly exhibited not only by Luke's description there, but by his pronouncement of God's judgment on these disbelieving Jews in Rome. And his resulting statement that this salvation has been, of God has been sent to the Gentiles. These are sobering words. And it should matter to us whether they're really true. Why? Because we're among the Gentiles who've been listening. We're the ones who've heard the message because of this story. Because of the judgment on the Jews, the gospel has spread to us. That's what Isaiah was commissioned to prove. So do we listen? Do we listen? Israel didn't. All this time later, do we still listen and respond to the gospel? About three years before these very events that are being described here, Paul wrote letter, a letter to the Roman church issuing a very similar warning to the Gentiles in that body urging them to cling to Christ by faith and not to become proud of the favor that they enjoyed with Christ, not to become glib about Israel's disbelief. 
which made them like branches lopped off of the tree of saving faith. I want you to listen with me to Paul's letter to Rome from chapter 11 of that epistle. You can even turn over there if you'd like to follow along. I'm going to read several verses, verses 17 through 24 from Romans chapter 11. It's about 10 pages over from Acts 28, page 947 in your pew Bible. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Gentiles now in Rome. And they already had this letter in hand by the time he was reasoning with the Jews here in Acts 28. Paul wrote, just beginning in verse 17, because you have to start somewhere, but if some of the branches were broken off, and that image will become clear in a moment, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So you hear where Paul's starting. If some of the branches of a tree have been broken off, and God, who alone would be able to do this, is, is putting others in their place, is, is taking other branches and sticking them on this olive shoot. But if some of the branches were broken off in you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among others who now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, verse 18, do not be arrogant. Toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Salvation has come from the Jews, we might say. This is a Jewish faith that is being completed, fulfilled in Jesus. Salvation has come from the Jews. Verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. It's Isaiah's prophecy right there. But you stand fast through faith. It's not an entitlement for you any more than for them. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Verse 21, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. There it is, the warning. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? That's how Paul spoke about this to the Roman church. Throughout this book of Acts, we've seen the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people to whom Jesus was sent as their promised Messiah. But they didn't believe. In those days, it was the Gentiles who were listening. That's what Paul says here. So are we listening still today, clinging by faith to this salvation that God has so graciously sent to us? Are we? Are we? We have two important and discernible takeaways from our study this morning. 
and from this past year, two important and discernible takeaways, that warning and that charge that I told you about at the beginning. The warning, press on trusting Christ alone for salvation. Press on trusting Christ alone for salvation. It's not enough just to hear the gospel. It's not enough just to appreciate the gospel. It's not enough just to be impressed by the gospel. It's not even enough just to believe that the gospel is true. You can believe the gospel is true and still not savingly believe. Have high regard for the gospel and still not be a blood-bought believer. We need to recognize our sin and confess and repent of it. The very sin of unbelief or disbelief that's talked about here, the very sin of pride that would believe that somehow we're entitled to a gospel that has cut off others for their unbelief and that we wouldn't be likewise cut off. The humility that comes from understanding that salvation is of the Lord. This isn't talking about having gained salvation and then losing it. This is talking about having gained an appreciation for salvation and never truly surrendering to the King of kings and Lord of lords in repentance and faith, recognizing that He is your only means of reconciliation to the true and living and just and holy God. So we can hear and appreciate and be impressed by the gospel and believe that it's true and still not be reconciled to God through it. We need to come to Him in acknowledgement of our sin, of confession and repentance and faith, trusting in Christ alone as our Savior. And we need to press on in that trust, in that belief, that faith. Paul wrote this to the Romans. Note then God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. That's a warning. Don't just love and respect the gospel. Surrender to Christ in repentance and faith. True believers then endure in that belief. And Paul is modeling that here. That's the warning. The charge, press on in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. So the warning is press on trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and the charge is press on in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Peter did in this account, and then Paul It's essentially the study of the book of Acts. But also, Stephen, Barnabas, Timothy, Apollos, many others have done just that throughout this record, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, as this record is coming to a close, Paul is still doing it. He's doing it with all boldness and without hindrance, the text says. For the first time in a while, he's been hindered, quite hindered for a long time, but now with all boldness and without hindrance. But remember, as we read those words and think that there was a freedom to Paul's witness and proclamation as Acts came to a close, don't forget that he was in prison, chained to a Roman guard. But he's unhindered from Luke's perspective. That's amazing. What do we count as a hindrance? Hindrance doesn't mean you've got kind of a busy schedule. Hindrance means the active opposition of the enemy against you. And right now, during this time, he was relatively free of that. We've said from the start 
of this study, that this is not just the story of the early church, it's our story. The subtitle of the whole series has been the story of the church living into this drama in the 21st century. This is our story. This is our history. This is our legacy. This book sets our spiritual trajectory. This is what our lives are about. This is us in line with our fathers and mothers in the faith. And as we see Paul described in this closing scene, we should find it compelling. We should find it alluring. It should draw us in. Is this what we're doing in our day? Is this description true of us? Pressing on in the proclamation of the gospel. My friends, it's the only reason why we're still here. It's the only thing that makes sense out of the the church. Once receiving Christ as Savior, not just being caught up into the heavens and freed from this battle against sin and the flesh. The thing that makes sense of our staying here after receiving Christ as Savior is that we're messengers just like Paul. Are we doing this in our day? Are we continuing this work in celebration of the salvation that God has sent to us and proclaiming it until Christ returns? Do we see ourselves as bold and unhindered in that work? Thankful beyond words for the unspeakable gift that's ours in Christ. Is that us? That's where we belong at the end of Acts. Saying, what a joy it is to take this message out there. That's our calling. There's our identity. There's who we are. But lest I preach the rest of the day, which is a distinct possibility. I'm excited by this text. Let's close our time here in prayer. Let's remember and proclaim our Lord's death in anticipation of His return. And then let's go out and do it. Amen? Let's pray. And as I pray, musicians and communion servers, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, thank you for this record of Acts. Thank you for this message of the early church. This accounting and how you have enabled Luke to tell it in such compelling fashion. Father, as it draws to a close today, may we not see it as the end of the story, but really the beginning that has been carried on by the church through the 20 centuries since it was written and now carried on in our day by those who are hearing and responding to the message even now. Oh, Father, help us to receive with open and humble and repentant hearts the salvation that you have sent to us in Christ and help us delight to be the proclaimers of it to the praise of your glorious grace until Christ returns finally to take us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.